You know what? The other day I was uh, thinking, one of my favorite Trisha quotes is, Ugh, the reason why I'm not an alcoholic, meetings. I don't want to have to tell everyone my business. Exactly. That was like, and you know what? For a moment, I felt myself drinking too much. And I was like, I got to cut this back because I don't want the cure. <laughs> I really want You know, I'm private. I mean, it's not, even, it's not even like I have a ton of secrets or anything. I just don't want people in my business that I don't want in my business. Hi, welcome to Outrageous, our bi-weekly podcast where we talk about race, media, culture, politics, and everything in between. My name is Chris. I'm in New York City, and I'm joined by my very best friend, Trisha in L.A. Hello. Hello. How are you, honey? I'm good. How are you? I'm great. I'm fresh off of my European vacation. Mm-hmm. It was fabulous. Germany, Belgium, Netherlands. Hmm. Welcome. Uh, which one is your favorite? Line uh, them up next to each other. Amsterdam. Uh, don't finish your question. Amsterdam. <laughs> <laughs> Why? Why? I love Amsterdam. I love it. I love it. I just, I mean, I've been there before. It's the only place I've been where I feel completely comfortable. New York, I will leave my house, text on my phone, walk all the way to the train station without looking up once. I'm not saying this. Is, you should praise that. I'm just, that's just a marker of how comfortable I am navigating. And I, Amsterdam's the only other city where I've ever done that. Mm. I think I remember the first time I went to Amsterdam, I think I might've been in Amsterdam when um, the Batman movie came out and they had that um, theater shooting. Yeah I, think it, yeah, I think it was there. And I remember thinking to myself at the time, I felt like I was in this fantasy universe because I was walking around picturesque Amsterdam feeling like this is not something that would ever happen in Amsterdam, you know? And I almost felt like I was, I felt guilty a little bit. Like, wow, why am I in this toy town when real <laughs> things are happening in the U.S.? You know what I mean? Yeah, real, real things. While I was away, there were two school shootings. Mm-hmm. So it's very odd to receive that news when you are in a place where that sort of thing never happens. You know, in America, like... Children will be gunned down and like just murdered. And then we'll be like, well, what are you going to do? <laughs> Other countries are actually like, well, we have, a, we have answers to those questions and we've done those things. So that's, you know, so that happened. It's so weird. It's so weird that we think of ourselves as exceptional, exceptionally innovative. And yet these like really basic things we can barely get done. <laughs> Other countries are like tackling like healthcare and legalizing abortion and stuff. And meanwhile, we're like, well, if all these children are dying, how can we profit off of them? <laughs> That's really where America sort of logs in. But also the new thing is they build shelters in the corner of the classroom where there was, you know, where you previously put like a reading nook. Uh-huh. Instead, now you have like a bulletproof shed that if anything happens, the kids run in. And so I just saw on the internet, there's a couple of schools who are trying this out. And I'm sure the company that's making them is uh, hoping, for like, more, hoping, oh, for more sure, hoping that schools standardize, which would be mm-hmm. great because everyone, then the NRA could like be like, we need more guns. And they'd be like, now you need more shelters. It's like, <laughs> you know what I love, Trisha? Unbridled capitalism. It really is great. I, I love it. It's just literally nothing is too vile and disgusting. Actually, actually, I saw this. Um, I saw a headline on Fox News, which was weird, but it was on my Twitter feed, so I read, and it said, "We are unable to profit from these weird MAGA ideas. Like, we can't do anything about the wall. We can't do anything about children being locked up in detention center. We can't monetize this." And I thought to myself, "There's." absolutely no reason anyone should have quoted this out loud. I literally said that. Also, you my, answer monetize. That, my answer to that is that you're not trying hard enough. I'm That's sure what there's I'm thinking. a way. There's I'm sure there. there's a way. I feel like there is. <laughs> I mean, can't someone, isn't someone making like build a wall or rip families apart t-shirt? I'm sure someone somewhere is working on that. It's weird. Yeah, well. I wanted to point out something that I noticed in Germany, which stood out to me clearly and immediately. 
And I was there for four days walking around Berlin. And the number of men that I saw with their children was staggering coming from New York. Okay, so first of all, in New York, you very rarely see children about, uh, native children. I don't mean Native American, I mean native to New York. You very rarely see New York children out and about. If they do, think about it. Next time you're here, like really walk around, think about it. If school is in session, you're not gonna see children. You will briefly see children on the street between the hours of three and perhaps five when they're bused or Ubered or shuttled by their nanny or whatever from, you know, school to after school or after school to babysitter, but then you don't see them anymore. You'll see toddlers and young children in strollers, but school-age children, you never see just gangs of them like in the street like you would in the suburbs. You just kind of don't. In Berlin, Mm -hmm. I saw like school-age kids, like eight, nine, 10, 11, walking around and hanging out with dads of those children. What? Yeah, I, I tell you. And the first day I was there, I was like, oh, that's, that's interesting that I'm noticing that. But then I realized I was noticing it because it uh, was unusual to me. I noticed that parents in Europe, broadly, really brought their children to social spaces. And I, and I mean that in the sense that over here in the United States, you'll have like, let's have a kid's date. And it's basically a date for your kids. And then you tag along as the parent, right? <laughs> yeah. I've noticed that when I was abroad, it was the reverse. It was an adult occasion in which children were brought along and then they had to amuse themselves on the side. <laughs> it's like the beer garden situation. Yeah, it's yeah. I was, beer yeah. Garden. yeah. Yeah. I was I was like, you know what? This is really an adult space, but not overly adult in the sense that um anything there's dildos danger, or something. Yeah, there's nothing really overtly sexual <laughs> violent or anything happening. It's just you knew that this is a space where adults go to amuse themselves. But it's mm-hmm. harmless enough that they can bring their kids along and the kids are off to the side. Actually, sometimes there might not even be other kids. The kids are just there, like hanging out while mom and dad are being entertained by their friends. And I just think that's such a different orientation to parenting, at least from the outside. I don't know what it looks like on the inside. I don't know what it is, but at least the appearance of it is different. And the other thing I was curious about is I'm wondering about what the work the work situation is like for men then, if they are hanging around school-age kids, right, during the yeah. day. Like, I mean, I think it must be something about like the work balance there. Because the assumption I'm, I'm here is, right, so. that men are like working from nine to whatever in the U.S. and so they're basically seeing their kids in the evening or, you know, when they're in bed. You just kind of don't see a lot of that here. I remember once I was walking through Central Park on a Sunday with a friend and she had noted, she's like, there's a lot of dads with kids here. And I was like, well, it is their day. <laughs> Sunday. Yeah. It's Sunday. So that's the day they get their visit with their kid. But that's not the kind of vibe I was getting when I was in Berlin. And I thought it was kind of cool. Like, usually you only ever see women with children that age dragging them, pulling them through the streets or whatever. But it was kind of neat. Berlin was nice. Amsterdam was nice. Europe is always a joy. It was fun. Yeah. What have you been up to? I'm not going to Europe. Um, I've been been working hard. And I'm being effective. And that's it. I'm not stroking myself by saying I work really, really hard. Um, I work hard enough. And I, and, I, and I think I'm effective at what I'm doing, which is a really nice balance for me mm-hmm. because I think I was like really falling for this idea that I have to really, really, really work hard. Remember years ago, I was really into that. And then I got sick and things went off swimmingly at my office and I realized that I didn't really have to kill myself. <laughs> and from that <laughs> moment on, it's always been about I'm giving you what I can handle and what you can handle and it's a-okay. We're all going to be fine. I'm not a brain surgeon, so I feel like it's okay. Lives are not going to be lost if I don't, you know, give it 150%. I'm giving it 100, and I feel pretty good about it. Um, And you should. I know. 100% is a lot. 80. 80 to 100, depending on the day. I reject the Protestant work ethic altogether. But oh, I know. It's, it's real. It's a real doozy. And I honestly think that it really grinds people's gears when you don't work 
as hard as they want you to in their minds. Like when you're not like a slave, like when you're not a slave to this idea that, you know, work makes you a certain kind, gives you character, right? Mm. It really is. Like, it's really interesting. And I've, I just, I've been thinking about it in other places too, because, you know, obviously some of the work I'm doing, it's some policy stuff. And it's so amazing how much policy is built on this model of like, we've got to make sure people are able to work for a living. It's like, really? Is that, is that still a thing? Like, no, like, you know what I mean? Like, I mean, I think our entire society is built on this real, real strong need to have people work, which is why, even though we have some people in the culture who really cannot work and should not work, like the really starkly mentally ill, someone, um, um, maybe the disabled, the physically disabled who really cannot, I think it really grinds people's gears. They don't know how to value that person's life if there isn't any sort of work contribution. It's just not enough. I don't know. I've been thinking about that. I've been thinking about, I've been thinking about work a lot. And I've been thinking about how it's actually the grounding philosophical like foundation of the U.S. And maybe most Western countries. I don't know. But damn, it really is here. It's funny. I mean, a lot of people, it's like, I just want to work. And I was like, <laughs> I'm like, I work or do you want paychecks? Let's be clear. No, you know what? I actually think work is a big thing. I think that people believe that if they cannot work, they have no merit. They don't have, um, they don't deserve to be here. Work is the price you pay for your existence. Look at my face. (laughs) (laughs) Let's, uh, let's chat about, look, Trisha, we're here to talk topics. Okay. So fine. fine. Let's, Let's jump into that. I Let's start with mine because it's heavier than yours. There is a book coming out or there is a book, <laughs> The Magic of Podcasting. There's a book now out by President Obama's longtime advisor, Benjamin Rhodes, where he sort of cracks open the door on Obama's inner sanctum and some of the thoughts and feelings he had after the 2016 election. In that, you know, Obama is is said to have asked several questions sort of musing out loud uh, musing out loud if given that Trump was elected a man who doubted that he was even born in the US and set out to undo everything that he did if that maybe Obama and his camp were wrong maybe he was a little too early Obama's quoted as saying like maybe we were 10 to 20 years too early given that the country has swung so far in the other direction and it it got me thinking cuz I'll be honest with you this is a question that I had. This is what some, I mean, Hillary Clinton had, had Hillary Clinton's camp had said as much to Obama back when she was running against him the first time. I don't know. I wanted to throw that out to you just like a general discussion topic. Do you think the Obama presidency and this idea of liberal global focus, do you think that was too early? And that's why we're seeing this swing now to Trumpism. First of all, that's a strange thing to say. Too early. What part of it is too early? The black man part or this neoliberal fantasy? Because I feel like we have to separate those two things. Do you have to separate it? Because I think I think you um, do. Having a black man advancing a liberal agenda with an idea to a global community, I think you can't separate too much. Otherwise, we're no longer talking about Barack Obama and his presidency. Well, see, this is what I'm saying, though. What I'm saying is that people have bought into the neoliberal idea for quite some time. So whether that's too early or not early, that doesn't seem that that seems like a strange question to me. Were people comfortable being led by a black president? I think that's the part of it that Obama is resistant to actually tackling. I think he seems to he seems to conflate the two, and I don't. So this is what I mean by if you separate out the policy and the direction the country's heading from the black man running the country, you can get too far afield. Because what are, what are you saying? That if it was a different black man with a conservative agenda, that a lot of the issues would have played out the same way? Because I disagree. No, first of all, first of all, we need to decide what people were rejecting. Obama thinks they were rejecting his ideas about a global community. Okay. And I've, I feel like that's false. I think that neoliberalism is actually even a challenging thing, period. I think a lot of people have problems with it. 
And I think that the bad things about neoliberalism was exploited by a white man who ran as a white president, Mm -hmm. buffing Barack Obama and connecting all of the failures of neoliberalism in some ways to a rejection of whiteness in some ways. I think those two were those two things were blended together. Now let me just go back and say many people were unsurprised at the surge that um, Trump experienced and the fact that Trumpism rose so strongly and the fact that birtherism rose so strongly. Birtherism was nurtured throughout Barack Obama's presidency. Yes. So in some sense, anyone who had been able to sort of take birtherism to the nth degree always had a part to play, right? They had, a, they had some skin in the game and they were going to get some result from that. That's what that was. I think what Barack Obama failed to understand or was surprised by was that white people were willing to sacrifice themselves for this idea of whiteness that Trump sold them. Otherwise, we would be talking about working class people suffering in the global marketplace and actually talking about the real working class, which is black, brown, women, all of people who make up the working class. But instead, what we have is a group of people talking about this is a this is a stinging rebuke by the working class, hint, hint, white people. Mm. That just so that tells me that tells me this is a racialized problem. I think because he like, was it, more convincing too, because his people convinced him that he could have won a third term. Yes, that's what that's that was. The I mean, and so, in in his mind, if he could have won a third term, that meant that they weren't actually rejecting him, right? If you if if somebody tells you that you could have won a third term, then that means that in some ways he believes his idea still has merit. But that's because he thinks that people were actually rejecting his ideas. I don't think they were rejecting his ideas. I think what they were re- what they were rejecting was a woman, which I still don't understand why people refuse to cop to the sexism. I really don't get that. See, but even that, Trisha, we've had this conversation that, yes, Hillary Clinton was a woman, but also she was Hillary Clinton. And that there's a lot wrapped up in that. Sure, just, like, but- just like Barack Obama is black, but also there's a lot wrapped up in being Barack Obama. So I don't know... How, what I'm saying is that I don't know, that given my question, given what Rhodes' book is about and what it reveals, is that is it about race or Clinton in an alternate universe where it was Clinton? Is it about gender? Yeah. I think what interests me is that in the 90s, um, particularly in South America, the three biggest economies in South America, Brazil, Uruguay, and Eva Peron land, um, Argentina. Argentina, they all experienced this move to the left. Like all these like liberal sort of communistic ideas were really taking forth in the, in, and it was an interesting time. Then in the, at the turn of the century, culminating in the 2008 financial crisis and people all over the globe had it worse. A lot of, a lot of places had it worse. And then I'm not saying that's when it started, but the swing to back to the right, severe swing to the right, like accelerates then. And we end up in the present day. Although it's very interesting to me, obviously, because I'm the co-host of this podcast to talk about race, I think separating out Obama's policies from his race doesn't really do service to the moment in time. Does that make sense? I disagree. I disagree. Hmm. I disagree fully. I mean, so, I think- So if Ben Carson, let's say, oh God, mm-hmm. maybe not Ben Carson, but like if some powerful conservative black Republican ran- yeah. Would he have experienced the same problems that Obama did? Would he have experienced the assault on his very birth? Of course. Because they See, didn't think I don't, I don't the, know if the, I agree. The, the, the thing you are the thing you forget is that there was a tremendous amount of enthusiasm for Barack Obama when he won. Everybody wanted that to be a watershed moment. Even people who Well it was. Well, yes, they wanted it to be a watershed moment, it right? Was. It was yeah. and it was. However, it didn't take very long. But also, I think one thing to note, which I saw the numbers, he still didn't win white people. He just won enough. So I think the interesting thing to note is that for me, it's I think the idea that this is like a global moment 
and that the race, the racialized element is not playing out. I just feel like that's really false because I think that that's also playing out internationally too. Hold on. I'm not saying it's not playing out. I want to make sure that we are, we are not talking past each other. I'm not saying it's not playing out. I'm saying it definitely influences what I'm asking. But what I'm hearing you saying, and maybe it's I'm hearing incorrectly, is that you're saying the policies don't matter. It's only the fact that a black man was president, yep. which is why yeah. I experienced these. Really? Why, why, why would you believe? It, you know why? Why would you pick someone who had no policy then? They had. They, you, they're talking about Trump. Yeah, they they chose someone. They repute. If think about this, they repudiated Obama by picking someone with no policy. So then, what were they choosing? But the thing is, you cannot tell me that they were repudiating policy. They chose no policy. So what were well, they choosing? What What's the thing they were choosing? What is What is the thing they were rejecting? And what they're rejecting was, and this is my opinion, but what I feel like they were rejecting was sort of like this focus that we are part of a larger community and that when that we need to take care of each other. Like the fact that... You're giving I think them what, more time and reason. You're giving well, them more reason. Well, hold on. What I'm saying is that like this idea that like, oh... We need to hold on to our piece of the pie. Oh, you know, the leak isn't on our side of the boat. Like that kind of thinking. I think that's what they were going for. I think the... By choosing, the a, million, by choosing a millionaire who pretended that he understood what they were falling for. I just don't get well, that. What, what, what they chose was that like, listen, uh, Muslims are coming for what we have. Migrants are coming for what we have. People who want to be identified by different genders or who are LGBT are coming for what we have. Like this very isolationist sort of idea and the policies didn't matter. I'm not saying race doesn't play into that. Cause it I race think is the only part that played into that. It's the othering of everybody else that played into that. And, and Obama signified that. That's what I'm saying. I'm saying that choosing Barack Obama and having this man lead them and offer this kind of like what globalized view of what the world is, which is actually just a rejection of exactly what the world is. Like it is what it is. So it's a rejection of the world itself. It is. I mean, it is. So, so what you have is a retreat into fantasist thinking. I mean, I don't think that you can pull race out of it because it's such an endemic part of American society. I really do. And the idea that he was too soon is also strange because he was too late as well. How soon is it to? How soon is soon to elect a black man who's um, who's who was smart, capable, um, and had a specific point of view? Like I just don't understand that idea. I mean, unless there's this notion of turn taking, which is what I think Hillary tried to sell. But I mean, I think the one thing that we have, I mean, the one thing I will concede is that I think people were willing to buy into the idea of Obama as an outsider to D.C. and to business as usual. Did he bring them the relief that they were expecting from an outsider? No, because the reality is a lot of the things that people wanted him to do, which is to bring back jobs, not bring just not bring new jobs, back jobs, that was never going to happen. So that's a that was a false expectation, right? But I will concede to the fact that there was a newness to Barack Obama that felt that resonated with people. And if there is one thing that Obama and I say Trump might have in common in sort of what they sold, it what was this. Here it we was go. The, it was the idea that they sold. I'm not them. I haven't been there. I'm not jaded. Yeah. To the degree That's that what, when they both said that they were referring to different groups of people, I don't know if that makes them similar. No, no. I think there's some. I think the similarity of the idea that I'm not a part of the Washington crowd resonates because Americans love the idea of bringing someone to Washington D.C. who hates Washington D.C. Also, no America, Americans are so negative about politics. I can't believe. Well. Exactly. So they, I mean, so I think, so, I mean, that's what I mean in terms of the extremes position. So it's like, Hey, I'm going to pick the guy who's never been there because he says he's going to go there and change things up. The first time around they picked Barack Obama and that's exactly how Barack Obama ran against Hillary Clinton. Right. He said that even in that interview, we convinced folks that she had been there too long. She couldn't do anything new. She'd been around the block too many times. Yeah. And we were brand new. Trump, yeah. He simply doubled down on that message. He doubled down on that message that this woman is too connected, too embedded, and you are frustrated by DC already, which they were, right? Because everybody had stonewalled Barack Obama and so it all appeared a mess. 
So to then mm-hmm. say you want somebody who's that much of an insider, you don't. You want somebody who's going to go in there and wreck everything. I think that but, message resonates. I think, okay. I think at the heart of my question is sort of like a, a fantasizing of a, about America, like picturing Barack Obama being like, was I too early? You know, I'm reading a lot into his question, right? Because yes, these are things are. that I think about. I'm just wondering if we had moved America further along the road of tolerance, further along education about whatever. Like if we, if we had improved the race relations and the situation in the country along those lines, 20 years from now, would a black president make more sense than today? But there was a study saying that they found a correlation between white American intolerance and support for authoritarian and totalitarian rule. And I found that to be, I mean, A, terrifying, absolutely terrifying. Because what that means is that, like, in order to other other people, in order to keep other people out, people are willing to literally cut off and burn their face to stop other people from getting part of their pie. Sure. And I wonder if we didn't have a black president, like if that reality wasn't thrust on them. I wonder if this is where we would have ended up three elections from now. And I guess I, I guess I now have fully joined you in identifying Barack Obama as a black person who was president. Yeah. Um, in America, you can't put them, you can't separate them. And I know this is like, a, that's like a fantasy that people had was this idea that, you know, really what they're rejecting was his, his platform and all the stuff. But I mean, who is the symbol of neoliberalism, but a Trump person, but Trump. I mean, this man, where does his wealth come from? But the exploitation of the working class. So how you turn around and embrace this person as a kind of working class hero? Yeah. Who's, I mean, that, that just, it's illogical. It doesn't make sense. It's so funny because I think one of the things that made him so compelling and someone that people voted for is because he sort of knew how to talk about the race thing for white people, right? Like he both attended to it, but then also assumed that there was a kind of goodness underlying all of that, right? Which is what mm-hmm. which is what people give him credit for. Like he could go into middle America and get p- people past their biases in some way, right? That's the that's the that's the story people tell about myth. him. Yeah, that's the myth that's about him, right? And so in some ways, that's why he probably had the courage to run in the first place and was able to convince them and suit and get people to vote for him was that belief in a kind of innate goodness of America, or at least to be able to tell the American story in a way that made people feel like they were, they wanted to go along for this ride. He was definitely capable of doing that. Mm-hmm. But I think at the same time, I think one of the things that I think people who some would say are cynical about America and including in that as like a Ta-Nehisi Coates or however, you know, who was surprised that Barack Obama won or any of those things is the failure to recognize that with any kind of progress that Black Americans make, there's always a backlash. I feel like that's the through line of looking at history and seeing your place in history. And Does not this to pushback say, feel more severe? Of course. I, mean, I don't know if it feels severe. I mean, does it feel, does it feel more se- severe than Jim Crow? I mean, probably not. I think what's I think what's challenging about this pushback is that embedded in it, white Americans are destroying themselves. Like you could you could legitimately say in the past that when they were pushing back that the country was in a particular state such that their pushback wasn't problematic for them, right? They were um, still getting housing, still I mean, getting all the perks of education, the educate a public education system that was still working for them. All of on. those things were go still on. working. I don't right? know if I agree with that, but go on. Make your point. Well, I'm, I made my point. I don't know what well, part of it you I don't, don't agree, agree with. with. I don't agree with that, but... What do you I, mean? I, I mean, the, I don't the understand point, the idea the point, of like... You, the point you're making is that in the past, the backlash didn't necessarily hurt them at all. Um, I mean, it did. It did in the sense that okay. the country. I mean, listen. It it does on a kind of what ethical moral ground. It no, hurts them. In that they're not an island again. Like the leak is on your side of the boat. That doesn't make sense. It makes I, sense. If you it's see- just that the problems that the problems that they would have encountered were probably further off than they are today. Exactly. That's, that's what, what I'm. Okay, that's what fine. I'm saying. Right. I'm, I'm okay. saying that the state of the United States was such. That yeah. if they wanted to take that position, it's fine to take that position in a world that yeah. wasn't global, right? 
on. Yeah. That makes sense, right? But, but because we weren't that connected, you know what I mean? The economy mm-hmm. of the United States was more robust, maybe in their minds, you could afford a good living, you know, all those kinds of things. Yeah. But so to my mind, I just feel like I want to believe, I, I understand the impulse of Barack Obama to ask the, the question of whether he was too soon and the things that he was pushing on was too soon. But I think that his race combined with the global landscape made it very difficult for Americans to feel like they had their bearings, to feel like they weren't losing out. Mm-hmm. So the question is, maybe would someone else have, would they, would a, would a different messenger allow his message to get across? Probably. Right? Like probably. a white messenger, that's what you're saying. A white messenger, Probably. Well, my question is, could a black messenger have gotten any different reaction whatsoever? I think conservatives convince themselves that it would have. But I think that once you had that person in office and you were confronted with him daily, I think you would have still had a strong reaction. I really do. I don't think people were reacting to Barack Obama because of his policies. Because what's interesting is that, I mean, there was a really funny I mean, there's a funny example that I just saw across my newsfeed that a kid went up at his graduation in Kentucky or some such place and and said a quote and credited it to um, Trump and everybody screamed. And then he's like, oops, I'm sorry, Obama said it. And there was dead silence. <sighs> That's important, right? Because we know, we know that when people are told about Barack Obama's policies without his names attached to it, they embraced it. Mm-hmm. But as soon as he said it, they disavowed it because there's something they think that the messenger is doing. Whether they think Barack Obama's policies are inherently going to impact Black people in a more favorable way, which is not always true, but whatever the assumptions are, that prevented them from clearly seeing his policy initiatives, clearly. Mm So that's what I, that's what I mean. It's like I don't understand that idea that his pol- like I think he thinks his policies can be absent him. They didn't embrace his policies absent him. The people at least who rejected well, him. Well, uh, you're saying that they would. Like if we don't if we if don't label Obama policies as, as Obama. So the policies were embraced. Theoretically they were. If you say yeah. if you if you tell I mean and then also we have to acknowledge that there's just a lot of general ignorance too. Because when when he when people were told what Obamacare was without calling it that they're like that sounds like a great idea. <laughs> it's, I um, I think it's, it, it's hard. Very interesting. It's really hard because like, yeah, it's very interesting what you're saying. I mean, I think the policies that Obama introduced would. How am I going to phrase this? I think the policies that Obama introduced would be popular if it was not for Obama. Like you said this earlier um, yeah. today, is that if there was a white messenger who had put that out there, he would have been really popular. I mean, he might have he might have been like the new JFK. We'd be lauding him forever, maybe. Um, for sure. I mean, Barack Obama, for for most intents and purposes, was a pretty squeaky clean, effective president in what he was doing. But he'll never get that credit because he's black, and I do believe that. Um, but also, but he's not he's, that liberal. That's the thing that's interesting. No, he's he's, he's moderate. He's, he's moderate. moderate. He had to be moderate again because race plays into that. And I guess I'm just. But stuck also, with the I question. think he's moderate. And I think I keep asking this question because you and I fundamentally disagree. I think that if it was a conservative black person who had been president, I don't know if the reaction would have been as rabid. Well, it just depends, though, right? I just, because the Republican Party would be in a bind. Like, that base would have to pull itself into control to consolidate behind the Republican person. Now, whether a Republican, a Black Republican, could even get as far as, you know, the ticket, that's a whole other podcast that we can spin out that fantasy world. But I'm saying if it happened, I think they would have gotten a different reception than Barack Obama. I don't know. I don't know. I don't, I mean, there's, I don't think there's any way to check. So in wrapping this up, I want to ask you one final question. When are we having our next black president? You know, it's funny. There's a part of me that actually says sooner than you think. <laughs> because listen, the obvious 
the obvious outcome of this presidency will be destruction. Like, I know people want to spin it however they want to spin it, but... Yeah, let's be honest about what's happening here. I mean, it we are eating ourselves. Oh, yes. I mean, you know what I mean? So at some point in time, things will get really bad. I know people have these weird fantasies. And I'm not saying... I'm, I'm not saying it either about being Republican or not Republican. I just think certain ideas are not going, don't have legs. Like you cannot continue to, to like erode public education. You can't continue to savage your population around healthcare. I mean, they're going to have real practical, practical impact, right? Dead Mm. people, stupid people. I mean, all of those things are going to have repercussions in the long run. That's real. And regardless of whether you're a Republican or a Democrat, it doesn't matter whether you're a Republican or Democrat if your school system sucks. It really doesn't. You're just not going to have well-educated people to take on whatever the jobs of the future are or whatever is required just to keep the world moving. So, I mean, I think you might end up with a U.S. that just looks starkly different because they've gutted themselves on some level and things might have to just start afresh and maybe and maybe the voice will be a black woman i mean who's to say maybe at the end of the day you might end up with a black woman out of this so you're saying after america is destroyed is when we'll see another black well just be clear just like like how they bring in a woman whenever some yeah destroys destroys itself by its own like impulse towards greed or whatever so you heard it here first woman Next black president after the fall of America. There's yeah. a reckoning. I think there will be a reckoning, right? <laughs> like, God, you know, I love these topics that we pick that end up here, which is just pretty much like, well, everyone, there'll be your, a reckoning. Your to your knees and get ready to kiss your ass goodbye. <laughs> I mean, I think the, the, set, the sense has always been that something saves us, right? Something saves us because people course correct or what have you. No I don't really, I don't no really know if anyone. I don't know if anybody, I mean, no one's going to save ourselves. I don't know. Yeah. I want to move on to your topic, but I want to have a quick five minute conversation. You have to promise me to keep this in five minutes. Okay. Sure. Roseanne Barr recently had her show canceled after a series of insane tweets culminating in a racist tweet against Valerie Jarrett, who was a former Obama advisor. And this was swift. I happened to have been watching it play out in real time on the internet, which was fascinating from her tweet the reactions to the tweet, to Wanda Sykes leaving, to Sarah Gilbert saying this was terrible, to NBC saying we canceled. All of that happened in 13 hours. Mm-hmm. It was phenomenal. It's the, it's the kind of thing that could only happen in this century yeah. with the way that social media works, which given that our focus is media on the program. You were shocked? I, uh, I wasn't shocked, but I was sort of like thrilled and fascinated. Like that happened in 13 hours. I was able to watch it happen on my phone. It was startling. I was shocked. Put bluntly, some racism gets your show canceled and some racism gets you elected president. I guess I wasn't clear which was which because I saw her tweet and I was like, well, this is where we are in 2018. But apparently uh, ABC was like, no, we're not. Or am I reading that wrong? What was your impression of that entire situation? I was surprised that she was canceled, too, because I feel like she's written worse things and been far more egregious. And she had been that person when the show was picked up. I don't necessarily know if it's necessarily her tweet as opposed to the fact that as a company, they couldn't control her. They had, this is apparently a long, it it was apparently an ongoing battle behind the scenes about how do you control her tweets? Mm -hmm. How do you control her access to media? How can we stop her from messing up our monetizing of MAGA? I still remember the president of CBS Remember when he said Trump might be bad for the country, but he's good for CBS. I think the same thing was being thought of on ABC side, which is like these feelings exist in the population. I feel like we can approach and create a show that coddles these feelings and plays to these feelings because these are the new feelings of the era. And maybe she's our new Archie Bunker, as somebody said to me. I was like, whatever. And so my tendency is not to believe that she had reached some sort of like limit or she had crossed a line. I basically just think that at some point in time, they decided that it was too taxing for them to try to control somebody that they ultimately couldn't control. Like, that's what it was. It was like an employee problem, not a moral problem, not a, not a, oh my God, you've crossed the line. I just, I didn't believe it. I really didn't. Not for nothing though. 
They knew who she was. I think they thought that her love for money would allow her to control herself better. Because in in many ways, similarly, we have people who say, who love Trump and say, oh, I just wish he would stop on Twitter. Like, right? That's like his policies, the things that he said yay to, they're not quaking their boots about it. They're just, they're like, I just wish he wouldn't say it like that. Or do you know what I mean? So I think for them, I don't think they had a problem. They clearly didn't have a problem hiring her. And they clearly didn't have a problem with the message of the show, which many people were rejecting. I think what they had a problem with was probably similar to, I mean, I hate to say it, but it's probably similar to the Colin Kaepernick thing for them, which is I can't control this employee. That's really what I think it is. I mean, I I don't, I don't give any sort of moral like pass to ABC. I don't think they hit their morality barrier. I I really don't believe any of that stuff. Well, I can't believe that because they hired her and greenlit the show in the first place. Like you said, like none of the things that she said on Twitter that day or that night were new. New information. Nobody was like, oh, wait, Roseanne is an anti-Semite and a... (laughs) Wait a minute. Like we knew that going in. So I'm with you. I cannot cannot side with the head of ABC um, who is a black woman, like being standing up for Valerie Jarrett or black women. At the end of the day, she had to sit across the table from Roseanne and look in that woman's face after everything that she said and done and been like, how many millions would you like? And how many millions are you going to help us get? Yeah, so we'd I, like I to think, make this yeah. many millions. How many millions would you like? Great. I mean, and, and so, I think it's okay. I mean, listen, listen, we all understand it. This culture is, I mean, capitalism works like that. But I, I really think it's something that happened behind the scenes. I think this is about somebody who was out of control behind the scenes. Yeah, probably. Well, that's, that's really my sense of that. And wrapping this up, there's a lot of consternation about the crew of Roseanne. Uh, and I read uh, two articles on this. And interesting thing that I read was that Laurie Metcalf, John Goodman, and Sarah Gilbert, the, the next season was supposed to be 12 episodes. They've already been paid for the first 10. Mm-hmm. So even though it's off the air and they not even happening, they each still received $3 million, which led me to think that I am in absolutely the wrong business. Yes, you are. Uh, And everyone is. I mean, there's a lot of sympathy for the crew. I mean, I, you know, I, I work around actors. So there's, they have a lot of sympathy for the crew because in many ways the crew can't control. Yeah. And the crew turned down jobs because they thought they were working for the next six months. Exactly. Um, And I, I mean, I feel some sympathy for that. On some level, I mean, except but, at the end of the day, and I'm not okay. Before yeah. I say this, I am yeah. not blaming the crew for anything. No one does. No one All does. Right? Yep. But they got hired to work on Roseanne, and again, everyone knew who Roseanne was and what could happen. And they sat and they watched the content of the show. And I mean, listen, I get it. I mean, this is this is what happens when you have a country that doesn't give you any safety net, right? You're forced to make morally abhorrent choices. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Time. That's really what happens, right? Yeah, because yeah. we have no idea if they turned on other jobs. This could have been their only gig for years. I don't know. I don't yeah. know what their finances are. I don't know what debt they put themselves in. I mean, this is what happens. If you have a if you have a culture or a society that has better safety nets, you might be able to turn down a job that you don't agree with. But yeah. this is a dog eat dog world. And so I do feel sorry for the crew because I understand the context of the world that they live in, right? Sure. Right, that so, was not five minutes, but it's okay. Let's jump right into your topic. Get ready, America. <laughs> I've been seeing a lot of a lot of posts about sex robots. So I came across an article um, in the Washington Post, really actually sort of blowing uh, apart all the myths around sex robots, which is that people assume sex robot might be a very good thing. It could dissuade people from rape. People are just making a lot of claims about sex robots. And so I think the author's point was there's actually not been a lot of research on sex robots, actually no research on sex robots. So all of these claims are sort of fantasy claims. And so we can't assume anything about what is good or bad about sex robots until we do research. And then I sort of fell down a little bit of a deeper hole reading. And then I realized they actually have not actually even created a sex robot yet. And so none exist. 
if I can just interrupt you. Sure. So to define for the audience, the difference between a sex doll and a sex robot. Yes. Um, sex doll is a prop. They make a lot of them. It's just an inanimate object that is shaped like a woman or a man, although rarely, uh, versus a sex robot, which begins to swerve into the world of AI. And yeah. the machine can respond to you either with verbal cues or by moving or changing the temperature of the silicone of its skin yeah. to react to what's going on in the in the scene. And the technology is there to begin to build a sex robot because there are robots now that exist, but they don't exist for a sexual purpose. So I think my sense of it is that people are, are doing exactly what you're saying, Chris, which is like inflating or inflating sex dolls with sex robots. And because they can see the end of this technology, really. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so then the question came up to me because I was in your apartment once and I said something I was I was about to be smart towards your Alexa and you're like I don't know what it is about people that once they find out that it's a technology or an inanimate thing they want to be cruel to it and so I immediately started to think to myself huh if that's the case then what is the end for a poor sex robot and then I started wondering just like I think online dating changed in-person dating I started to think about what would the world be like if we were inter if people were interacting more with sex robots? How does that actually change people's interactions with each other when they actually have to or don't? So that's what I started to wonder. I was like, what would the presence, what what will the presence of sex robots do to our social interactions? I have I have several things to say about this. One, in reading it, I really had to educate myself about the difference between sex dolls and sex robots. Yes. So, yes. you know, people have been masturbating from time immemorial. Adam yeah. before Eve showed up, what do you yeah. think he was doing? People have been doing it forever and people have been using tools and props to do it. And those are sex dolls. The idea and the problems with sex robots comes with the response or being able to imitate mm -hmm. a scene as if it was another person. Yeah. Now, you can always buy a mannequin and you know, pretend like you're killing it or pretend like you're fucking it or pretend like you're doing whatever. That's always been a thing. But the yeah, idea yeah. that you can program something to respond to you in a certain way, that's where a lot of the moral ethical questions become to enter in. Now, moving on, I think the general public, myself included, because I, I looked into this a couple of weeks ago because I got into a conversation with a friend about AI. AI is actually a really big deal. And yes. very... Fancy, very rich, very smart people like Elon Musk, Tim Cook, Bill Gates, and others are very worried about AI. Now, that struck me because I was like, I don't think about AI other than like the Amazon device or Google Home or <laughs> Siri. Like, I don't really think about what impact AI is going to have on my life. But these very smart, very rich people think it's going to have a, an irrevocable, like, like an, abs an absolute shift in the way that reality is experienced by human beings. And yeah, I was like, yeah. whoa, that sounds insane. Now, we're zooming right in on sex robots, which has been yes. a staple of fantasy and science fiction movies and writing for as long, long as like, nerds could type, right? <laughs> <laughs> the idea of like a fake woman that you can have sex with and she'll respond to you. Because let's be clear, these are men Creating these yeah, devices. Most, yeah, most of them, yeah, are women. Which, uh, yeah, a lot of the research, research, a lot of the articles I read around this were set, pointed that out that this is also very gender specific and problematic because it seems to yeah. be like unigendered. In looking around, I absolutely see all the problems with consent and you know gender and all the other all the other issues that come from these sorts of things. However, I'm going to be honest. I have a real hard time getting very incensed about this. Now, in Malaysia, they had the second annual conference of people having sex with, uh, what was it called? The second annual conference for um, humans having interactions with sex robots, yeah. which, you know, I found the whole thing stunning when I was reading about it. Cause I was like, one, that's the name of a conference. And two, they had two of them. And you should have gone. And you they have enough to talk about from year to year multiple conferences problems one there was there was a sex robot i read about called i want to say it's like frigid farah there's like snm susan there's like another one which is like barely legal which is another problem 
But Frigid Farrah, you flip a switch, and if you kiss the sex doll, it will say things like, please, I don't oh, even Oh, yeah, the rape, that. yeah, the rape fantasy. And then, like, you know, if you touch her on the thigh, be like, please slow down. Yeah. And so yeah. the idea is, is that this is simulating sort of a sexual assault situation where yeah. a, a woman or a woman substitute is telling you no, and then you are acting through as if you are assaulting her. Now, does that raise problems and questions? Absolutely. Like, <laughs> that's problematic. But my central, my central question, though, for our conversation, if I can hijack your entire topic, is does this promote that behavior or control it? Well, remember. Now, a couple, well, but let me just finish this, and then I want you to take it away. Last summer, there was a man arrested in England because he had ordered an extremely lifelike sex doll Mm-hmm. from some Asian country and it was built like a something like a 12-year-old girl. Mm-hmm. And he was arrested and as a pedophile and whatnot, whatnot. My stance was not for nothing, but he didn't actually do anything to a child at all. And yet he's in j- jail next to pedophiles. And it seemed to me that those things were different. Now with Frigid Farah You uh, got you were a little worried about it. Well with Frigid Farah similarly if someone was to do this and buy it and have this scene with it, technically no laws have been broken. So although there is definitely, I know you're going to get to it, right? So I'm setting you up. So what is the problem then with these devices? I, that's the question I'm asking you. What I'm, because I mean, I think the original article I was reading was talking about using this within a clinical setting. Clinical for treatment? Yeah, for treatment, for treatment. It was the idea that you could actually help heal people or work with people through some of their sexual um, challenges by having a robot respond to them in a way, you know, like, I mean, you know how to to model better behavior, right? To model better social interactions. That was, that was how the article introduced it. So this this is the question though, but this is a question we always have, right? Because isn't this, I mean, it's weird because every single thing is sort of like an outgrowth of a previous conversation, right? I mean, isn't this an outgrowth of the conversation that we have around video games? Yes. The idea is that if you, if you activate someone's fantasy, at some point in time, you sometimes you're actually allowing them to find a, an outlet in a safe way. And other times you're priming them to behave in the real world similarly. And I think the research is kind of out on that. My thing is, I don't even think you have to go that far. I think what we understand is that uh, we, I mean, this, this is what Marsha McLuhan talked to us about, is that humans are changed by their technology as much as their technology, as much as they create their technology, technologies have underlying values. They always have. They're not a sort of a passive thing. And so the question becomes, what's the underlying value of a sex robot? It's essentially an opportunity for you to have an interaction with a thing that is entirely about you. If you extrapolate that out to an interpersonal interaction, that's a dangerous scenario. Okay, okay. Right? Let's I'm slow that saying. connection down. Let, okay, I, I agree with you. I agree with you. But let's slow that connection down. First of all, plenty of people have sexual interactions that are all about themselves, right? People, everyone masturbates. Everyone does. Sure. But what, what's, what we're talking about, what I'm, what I'm getting, is that if you think of sex robots as a surrogate, right, or a crutch to helping you develop relationships with humans, then what you said becomes true. Then what then having an interaction that's all about you becomes problematic because it's no longer educational. It's no longer instructive. It's actually damaging ethically. Yes. yes. You would yes. agree with that? Okay, over, cool. over a sustained period of time. This is the yeah. thing though, within a clinical setting, that's fine, right? Because it's, it's um, there it, you're being monitored and there are things that are happening back and forth. Right. But this is a situation where, I mean, we all know on some level, I mean, one of the things that people talk about sex robots helping with is like social isolation and all the things that are necessarily Which problematic. I, I mean, but listen, but isn't that part of what people sell about internet and all of that stuff is you don't have to leave your house. If you're trapped in your house and you can't go for whatever reason, you're able to have interactions. Just, I think this is why we have people trapped in our homes. 
It's, well, it's maybe. the woman thing again, is that the internet has allowed people to trap themselves in a home. But then the question is, then, <clears throat> then if, if that's the case, then what will a sex robot allow you to do? Well, it's the same thing. Listen, we agree. <laughs> I think sex robots are a bad idea. Sex I mean, dolls- I'm not saying they're necessarily a bad idea. I'm oh, just asking. I'm just asking about what... I think one of the interesting things that happens here is that we actually have a moment where we can... We can ask these questions because this is my thing about technology or technological interventions is that we don't talk about the repercussions of them, right? Like what is the arena where we look at it, talk about it? We have sex dolls. So there are things that we can talk through. Yeah. Right. We can, we can anticipate some of the challenges and some of the issues and begin to sort of think through and plan for Right, so that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to like, what are what are the unintended what are the unintended consequences that we think might come out of this? Listen, I just think it's interesting. Having robots as a surrogate for human interaction is never going to be successful in healing people, in teaching people about human interaction. Mm-hmm. I, I I honestly believe that. I think the only way to challenge to tackle human interactions to have human inter. Action. And I, I feel the same way about support animals. I know people will be like, oh, but I need my support dog. And I'm going to say, well, why don't, if you need comfort, why don't you try going to another human instead of getting this animal substitute, substitute which is really all about you at the end. Yep. Of the day, right. Because yep. that's a creature who's wholly dependent on you for their existence. Yep. And you're talking about, but she loves me. Well, she had better. <laughs> <in it." laughs> You know what what I think is so interesting about it though is I think in many ways you could all you should always have been having these larger conversations about the technological interventions in our lives, right? Mm-hmm. But somehow or another sex robots I think is the perfect space for it. Because I I I feel like people suddenly go, "Ooh." They can ask themselves what this might mean. Well, right? you know what? Let's talk about sex. Baby, let's talk about <laughs> you and me. me. This idea of sex as being so transactional that you don't need another person. Yeah, that's 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 fundamental in the idea of a sex robot is that sex can be so divorced from humanity that a machine can do it. Yep. Yep. And this is why when I was in school learning to be a social worker and do therapy with people back at the turn of the century, there was this idea that soon will be doing counseling over the internet. And yep. I was always the one in the class vociferously against this. I was mm-hmm. like, this is not going to work. Like, this is not what therapy is about. Like, you cannot counsel and heal people in this way. And, and hello, every They're podcast I ever listened to besides this one, advertised for Talkspace, which is literally a text that you can be <laughs> you've never met about your problems. Yep. Now, I, to this day, 20 years later, do believe that you cannot heal people that way. If you need, if you are human, having human interaction problems, you need to interact with human to get over them. Sorry about that. Now, the, a lot of the articles I read were thinking like, oh, sex robots would be great for people who uh, have trouble interacting. They get to have sex too. Or these, these who are these domestic terrorists? What do they call themselves? Involuntary celibate yeah. assholes. Who are like, women aren't having sex with me because I'm a vile human being. God damn it. Everyone's like, oh, sex robots would be both perfect for them. I was like, you know what would be perfect for them? Some fucking corrective therapy to realize yeah. that they're assholes and that's why people do so. Well, I mean, but I think I think you hit the nail on the head, though, right? Oftentimes, when we have these moments, we have to realize that what's happening is a human issue. But we always want to offer an alternative solution that doesn't involve our humanity. Yeah. And so... I think that, I mean, I think sex robots will happen because I think even though we raise these questions and we try to anticipate the end result. I think they're already happening, first we, of all. Yeah, I mean, we do, right? We bring them out and we don't really talk about what that means and we don't offer avenues for us to explore that. Like, I don't know what that looks like. I don't know what that, I don't know how it is that we, when do we decide to go forward or stop something? I don't think we've ever done that. Like that's like written in our DNA in terms of progress. Research-wise? Yeah, just it's just progress, right? We've never said to ourselves, this is not a good idea. Human cloning. We did, right? But then there was some rejection in the US. You could go to other places and begin mm-hmm. and do that work. 
So there is always that tension. So I, you know, I find it, um, I find it a, a kind of like an ongoing, an ongoing challenge. I think this was, but I, I, I hear your point. I mean, I, I just, my thing is that we should always be paying attention to the fact that our technologies are mostly about us. Yeah, 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 yeah. We move on to recommendations, which is something you've seen, heard, read, or experienced you think other people should see, hear, read, or experience. What do you have? Man, I feel like I've been so poor at taking in a lot of media, but I'm going to recommend two things. Uh, <laughs> I went to see Book Club starring actresses who are over the age of 50, which is a shocking thing to do in Hollywood. Shocking. It's Jane Fonda. Diane Keaton. Diane Keaton. Mary Steenberg, Steenburgen, I think is her last name. And um, the woman who played Murphy Brown, Candace Bergen. Oh, yeah. And Don Johnson, uh, <laughs> Andy Garcia. The uh, old people. Old people. Oh my gosh! But you know what? It was actually <laughs> delightful. I had a really good oh, time. The in- this is this is the kicker, guys. The interactions between the love interests were surprisingly tender and thoughtful. Oh, you love a tender man. I well, you know what it is. I love people that speak to each other like human beings. You know, my biggest pet peeve in romantic comedies is that I don't ever believe the interactions, and especially when it's schlobby white dude falls in love with beautiful Scarlett woman, Scarlett Johansson, and yeah. they they they're not on screen enough. They don't speak to each other, and I'm like, what are you falling in love with? But I actually, because the characters spoke to each other and engaged with each other. I was able to buy the romances and I was also able to buy the friendship. And it was just also, let's be honest, really nice to see old women on screen enjoying their lives. It was like a Golden Girl episode, but in a movie theater. So I really would recommend Book Club. I mean, I will say I don't tend to see movies unless they have at least one person of color in them. That's a new thing I took on. And there mm-hmm. weren't that many. I'll say Andy Garcia is a person of color. Oh, he so- is. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he is, but, uh, uh, you know, um, he is. So I gave myself permission to go and see it. My second recommendation was, oh yeah, I actually, somebody told me not to see the second season of Broadchurch and I did, and it wasn't as good as the first season, but I have to say there were some really good moments in the second season Hold on a second. So last episode, you recommend Broadchurch first season. This episode you're representing, you're recommending second season? Like- I did. Are you paid by Broadchurch? What's happening? I'm not, but you know what? Everyone told me it was bad, and so I was staying away. But then it was on my at Netflix, and I was like, let me just check it out. And you know what? It wasn't unpleasant. I mean, you have a really, lot of time on your hands. Not really. I I've wish I could check out two. all the things that are around. You know, it's, you know what's so great about it? It's only eight episodes. That's actually really good because I was like, I'm not doing anything that's 22, 23, you know, 23 episodes. Mm. But eight, eight episodes, 40 minutes. I think I, I I think I'm and and ended up doing that on um, Memorial Day. It was great. Right. Yeah, it was well, really good. What about you? Since you made two recommendations, I'm also going to make two recommendations. Fine. The first one is something that I saw on Broadway, which I never think counts because many of you don't have the opportunity to see this. But uh, I saw Dear Evan Hansen this past weekend. Oh, how was that? Oh my god! First of all, I am biologically allergic to hype. So, I mean, so I was like, you know, so Hamilton can't be bothered. Like, hello, Dolly. I was like, sure. So, Jeremy Hansen, everyone's like, oh my God, the best thing. I was like, I'm good. I don't need to see it. But got tickets as a surprise. It was really arresting and good. Are there black people in it? There is is one black character in it. There's like seven characters in it, and one of them, she is black. It is. I don't know how much I want to say. The show is about a boy. Should I I see it in New York when I get there in the summer? Oh, honey, you can't afford it. It's crazy. The tickets are crazy. Like, it's the kind of ticket price where I was like, oh, there's no way the show's going to be this good. But it was. I do have a job. Honey, jobs, they're good nowadays. (laughs) It's about a 17-year-old boy who has some social issues. Mm -hmm. uh, And he needs a sex robot. Yes. So he gets a sex robot. Mm-hmm. and uh, her name's Frigid Farrett. No, none of that's true. <laughs> Stop uh-huh. interrupting me. He's a 17-year-old boy who's got social issues, and through a confluence of events, he gets wrapped up in this sort of rumor or myth that he perpetuates that he was best friends with this boy who killed himself. 
Oh, um, spoiler alert, but the boy dies in the first 15 minutes of the thing, so it's fine. And then just what happens and how he goes from being like a nobody to a mm-hmm. somebody. And mm-hmm. the show explores what does it mean to be forgotten? What does it mean to be remembered? What does it mean to be connected? And then sort of central in there, because it's the only relationship that has an arc, is the relationship that he has with his mother, who I don't know the actress's name, but she was phenomenal. She won the 20. Uh, it was a really great, moving show. And it's the kind of thing that you, when you watch it, you have to remember that it didn't come from anything. This wasn't a book. This wasn't a movie. This was written as a musical. And oh, that's it's, not, awesome. yeah, it's, not, it's not the kind of musical that you would think that someone would just sit down and be like, let's set this to music. But it was really <laughs> I would highly Love recommend that. it. And since that's not something everyone can jump in on, something that everyone can jump in on is the show on, called Pose on FX, which oh, is yeah. the Brad Falchuk series exploring ball culture and the lives of several LGBT, a lot of trans people in the 1980s in New York. The show had some issues. <laughs> uh, primarily, it's really overdramatic, but I mean, so, so was Glee, an American Horror Story, and um, Feud. So that's kind of like his wheelhouse. It yeah. was, su- And it, this is about gay people performing at balls. <laughs> it was very overdramatic. It had a cast of all people of color, except for James Vanderbeek and Evan something or other. It was all people of color. It was a ton of trans people, a Love ton it. of gay people, a ton of bi people, I presume. I hear most of the cast is also LGBT, uh, mostly trans, and I think it's fabulous. It's, the show itself is a fantasy. So oh, you have okay. to engage it like a fantasy. Okay. And, and it works, you know. The New York, the '80s New York they show you is very sanitized. It's obviously <laughs> shot. It's obviously shot in the current day. And if you're even vaguely familiar with New York, you'd be like, "No way did New York look like that in the '80s." Um, also, some of the clothes they wear are from the '90s, so that's. <laughs> oh, get that together, you know, they need to though. get that that's under control. Yeah, we gotta get but, that together. Um, there's a lot of emotional moments in the show, which I thought were just fun. But it's just fabulous to see like these performers slaying it at these balls it's so much fun <laughs> so check it out That's, uh check it out post it and great. there we have it uh i don't know we you know we started with obama ended up with sex robots and um, then uh you know yeah. started with your paid advertisement for broad church so <laughs> we kind of really ran around in a circle <laughs> you know right after we both gave a blistering critique of capitalism you're just like hello broad church can i show you <laughs> on my podcast that i think we're up to six listeners so, <laughs> four people thanks for taking a chance <laughs> what are you up to for the rest of the day my dear uh, i gotta do some work okay you know what i'm sorry i asked anyway have a great rest of your day and you all hear from us in two weeks bye bye <laughs>